0: Well, no matter whose statistics you choose to use, they all paint roughly the same picture when it comes to mental health in America. According to Mental Health America, they do an annual State of Mental Health in America survey, Uh, and as I said, it doesn't matter which statistics you use, they're going to paint a similar picture. 19.8, almost 20% of adults in America experienced a mental illness nearly equivalent to 50 million Americans. Over 2.5 million youth in the United States have severe depression. Uh, The percent of adults who report having suicidal thoughts has risen every year since 2011. It's around 4.5%. And as for treatment, more than half of adults with a mental illness receive no treatment. And over 60% of youth with major depression do not receive any mental health treatment. I I guess if there's any encouragement or value in statistics like this, you, you give them in part so that people who are struggling... Know, for one thing, they're not alone, not by a long shot. Everyone in here knows someone who is wrestling, who's struggling with mental health issues. And if you are here and in that spot, then you need to know you are not alone this morning. Thankfully, more and more people are realizing the value in counseling, receiving counseling, Uh, Over time, it seems that uh, years ago, there was maybe a a stigma around that, oh, I'm going to see a counselor. Now, shame is being removed, and that's a good thing. Thank God that God is raising up more and more counselors, good counselors. But in Jesus Christ, we have not just a good counselor. According to the scriptures, he is the wonderful counselor. In the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, I am, God willing, going to preach a four-part series on the topic, A Name for Every Need. A Name for Every Need. It comes from that famous verse in Isaiah 9. You can go ahead and begin turning to Isaiah 9th chapter. That famous verse, unto us a child is born. You saw it on the screen. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's today. (laughs) Mighty God. That's next Sunday. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Carol's in communion by candlelight. Everybody got the schedule? (laughs) Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I hope that this series will encourage you. And part of what I think is so encouraging about preaching uh, from Isaiah is that, I I hope it's encouraging to know, sometimes when you look around, you go, the problems we're facing in this country, people say, oh, we're so divided, we're divided on all these things, and, and, and everything's falling apart. I want you to know, if it's any encouragement, these are not new problems, and the prophet Isaiah speaks with such a modern voice. And so I've had you turn to Isaiah 9 and we're going to look starting in verse 1. But can I just give you a snapshot? You don't even have to turn there. Can I just give you a little, a little random smattering of some things that are happening in Isaiah's time? This is the context. This is what leads up to Isaiah chapter 9. Just a random smattering. For everybody, this is 800 years before Christ, right? It's 2,800 years ago. And for everybody who has said, you know, the problem in 2021, you know, our problem, our problem, we have a crisis of leadership. The government. The government's completely a mess and it's falling apart. Not a new problem. 2,800 years ago, Isaiah 3, 7. Look at this. Here's your qualification. Here's how bad things are in Isaiah's Israel. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, uh, you have a cloak. You be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In other words, the qualification for leadership was so bad that it's like, uh, you've got a nice jacket. Why don't you run this heap of ruins Here, you be the governor over this dumpster fire. Why? Because you have a nice coat. (laughs) Crisis of leadership. Some would say, nah, now you got it wrong. Pastor, it's it's not the government. The problem is follow the money. It's all about the greed, the materialism, and idolatry. Not a new problem. Isaiah 2, 7. You could go almost anywhere in the first few chapters of Isaiah. But look at this. Oh, their land is filled with silver and gold. Oh, there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. Those are um, ancient SUVs. (laughs) No end to their chariots, right? Oh, come on. They got everything. Their land filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. You say, no, it's not the crisis of leadership and it's not just the greed. What about all the the substance abuse, right? What about uh, substance abuse and and, and, and sexual morality and the decay of morals? And and now all the way down to to pagan, satanic, darkness, demonic, superstition. People consulting mediums and psychics. I mean, what about all that? I mean, check, check, and check. Uh, uh, Substance abuse. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, they may run after strong drink. Who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Oh, they've got lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. It's not a new problem. What about sensuality? Uh, uh, Isaiah 3.16, the Lord says, The women of Zion are haughty. Walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. the poetic way of saying you have women who are God's image bearers, trading that dignity, acting like an object for men who are all too ready to objectify. What about superstitions and and, and satanic uh, occult practices? Yeah, 819. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, You know, uh, let's consult the dead and and see what these spirits have to say. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? It doesn't mean the truth isn't out there. It means the the truth is out there. People know what we're supposed to do, but the world is still dark and empty. Isaiah, a very modern voice, but it's not naive. It uh, pulls no punches when it talks about the darkness of a world that has said, we don't want God. Uh, look at uh, Isaiah eight twenty, and this will get us into 9. To, to the teaching and to the testimony. In other words, okay, l- let's go back to what the Word says. If they will not speak according to this Word, it's because they have no dawn. Right? The light's gone out. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God, turn their faces upward, they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and be thrust into thick darkness. They knew what they were supposed to do. They couldn't seem to fix it. <laughs> this, is this not a modern picture? Like, like, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be kind to one another. We're supposed to love one another. Everybody knows that, especially at Christmas. Every, everywhere you see that. We're, Christmas time of love, time of uh, caring and giving to those. Everybody knows. Then why, if everybody knows what we're supposed to do, why are we in such a mess? Tim Keller uh, once gave an illustration that every parent can relate to. He says that uh, while he was a professor, his wife would go off to work, he was a professor, he had, uh, his boys were around uh, old, eight, nine years old, and so he would work upstairs in his study, the boys were downstairs, and um, he said, I know this is going to shock you, but uh, sometimes they'd fight. And he says, so what happens when they fight? Well, you got eight or nine-year-old boys. What do you do? You you want them to sort it out themselves. And so you send your advice down. You send your word down. And you say things like, you ready? Share! (laughs) Now, this is a revolutionary concept for an eight-year-old boy. You understand, right? Share! (laughs) And it doesn't work. And so you send down more advice. You know, take! Take! turns again revolutionary they're fighting and so uh, you send your word down you send your advice down and they're still fighting and at some point you always say don't you, you know <laughs> you know where this is going don't make me come down there myself right if they couldn't solve it themselves. Eventually, those boys can't solve it themselves. And what has to happen? My word, which I have sent down multiple times, my word has to become flesh and dwell among them. Incarnation. We know what we're supposed to do. And Keller says, I had to become incarnate from the first floor to the second floor. I had to come in body. Why? Because they couldn't fix it themselves. The message of Christmas is God had to come downstairs himself. The message of Christmas is that nothing less than the very presence of God could fix the mess we're in. We've got plenty of advice. We've got all the prophets and all the talking heads and all the quote-unquote wise men and sages. We know what we're supposed to be. We're still in darkness and nothing less than the presence of God, the incarnation, the birth, death, and resurrection of God himself could save us. And that, that is what the prophet sees in Isaiah 9. He looks around and he sees. Now this is incredible. He sees in the future and says a prophecy like it's already happened because it is so clear in his mind. We, on the other side of the incarnation, can look back and say it's incredible. That is exactly how it happened. Look, 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 look. Verse, verse, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Israel's in all this trouble, brought it on herself, her own sin and disobedience. In the former time, he brought Into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. What is he talking about? Well, remember um, from 2020, the Isaiah series? uh, uh, You remember the Assyrians came and and, uh, destroyed, desecrated this land. And he says, not only did that happen, that's what did happen, okay? But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's saying, in this geographical area, right where Assyria came through and destroyed the people of God, that's where hope is going to come. That's where this, 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 this way will be made glorious. Now of all things he picked: Zebulon, Naphtali, Galilee. You say, those, those regions sound familiar. What is it about those regions that were made glorious? And you're, you're thinking of it, and I know you're thinking, you're thinking of Matthew four 12, aren't you? Yes, you are, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're like, I know that one. Yeah. In Ma- when Jesus begins his ministry after his temptation in the wilderness, here's what Matthew writes in Matthew four twelve. Look at the New Testament fulfillment. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. By the sea in the territory of Zebulon. Where have I heard that? 30 seconds ago. <laughs> yes, and Naphtali, that's that other place. Yes, that's what the, the prophet for. So that. Matthew says, let me put it all together for you. What was he doing? What on earth was Jesus doing up there? He was fulfilling that prophecy so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Oh, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled in the incarnation. Isaiah 9 2 goes on to the people who walked in darkness, Matthew just quoted this, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And look at the blessings this child brings. Look at the look at the blessings of the incarnation. Look at what he gives and then what he takes. But what he gives, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham. That from your seed, all the nations will be blessed. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will worship God. And all the way in Revelation 7, what do you see? Promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And every tribe, tongue, nation, and language seated around the throne, worshiping the Lord. Multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And here, um, Isaiah picks a metaphor that he has to use because he lived in a time before there were locker room celebrations after the World Series. If he had lived in a time when there was locker room celebrations after the World Series, he, 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 we might get the picture. But their version of that was when the harvest came. Joy, the harvest, we're going to live through the winter. We're going to make it. There's great celebration. And or, or after a day of battle, when they, uh, glad when they divide the spoil. Exuberant joy. And look what he removes. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. He sets these captive people free. That's what God does at the incarnation. Those who receive Jesus Christ more and more in greater measure, sometimes immediately, sometimes over time, he sanctifies you and he removes that rod of oppression. He removes, we're in slavery to sin and he removes that. Why does he reference like he did on the day of Midian? Of all the battles to reference, Midian. Why? Because over and over, he's going to say again in a few verses, the zeal of the Lord does this. It's the Lord that does this. The light has dawned. The people couldn't create the light themselves. In other words, you can't free yourself worldly wisdom. And I'm all for learning. Let's have as much learning as we can. But the world's way of looking at the world, the world's, it won't ever get us there. It has to come from the outside. That's why he references Midian. Midian is maybe one of the greatest examples of, okay, only God could do this. Do you remember Gideon? Scared, timid Gideon. Angel sees Gideon, who's hiding, trying to thresh wheat in a wine press, which is in a cellar, you throw the wheat up in the ground. You need the big, up in the air, you need the big open air of wind. Gideon is scared that somebody's going to see him and steal what little wheat he has. The Philistines, or the Midianites are going to see him. So he's in a wine press trying to do it, right? And the angel comes to him and says, oh mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, I think you got the wrong guy. (laughs) You remember this? And he gets 30,000 men. And God says, that's going to be too many, because if you overtake the Midianites with 30,000, everybody's going to say, well, it's Gideon and his strength and his army. And so he whittles it down and whittles it down until it's just 300. Why? So that the Midianites would know, so that Gideon would know, so that we would all know victory comes from God, not from what we can do. So he can free. He can free you from addiction this morning. He can free you from being a slave to sin. Only God can do it. And when he does, oh, this victory. Look at the peace. Look at the peace. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day when every weapon of mass destruction and every, every, every weapon that's designed for a human to hurt or kill another human can just be put in a bonfire. We won't need them anymore. Don't you long for a day of peace. How is he going to accomplish this with his own military campaign to fight fire with fire as it were? No, you know how. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is a name for every need. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is intended to be a four-part series, and Usually when you begin a series like this, you have to take your first part and you have to make a tough decision because you've got to spend some time introducing the whole series. But some of you are glancing at your watch going, we're never going to get to Wonderful Counselor at this rate. And so I thought what we would do is uh, we'll look at Wonderful Counselor briefly today. I don't mean pastorally briefly. I mean, I mean briefly. <laughs> And we'll show you how Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Not just tell you, but show you. And I got this um, Jesus is a wonderful counselor out of a scene out of the book of John. And I'm not the first one to notice this. I heard it. Uh, Tim Keller quotes Dick Lucas, and he makes this insight often from John chapter 11. And I w- if you're a note taker, I want you to jot down a couple things about how he is a wonderful counselor. He's a name for every need, and this morning, he is a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor because, and I got three of these, number one, he deals with us personally. He deals with us Personally, the reason you, you you want to sit down with a good counselor, even in our own limited, you know, not the wonderful counselor Jesus, but just a good counselor. This good counselor, she's not gonna, or he's not gonna treat you just like uh, uh sort of as a uh, 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 on paper, you know. Hey, if this person's got this, you give him this diagnosis. This person got this, you give them that. No, 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 no. He's gonna treat you as an individual. She's gonna sit down and really want to know your story. He's gonna deal with you personally. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, deals with us personally. I want to get the the facts of the story on John 11 uh, fresh in our minds. This is the story of Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. If you want to turn there, Um, you may recall that... uh, 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 He gets word that uh, Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha send word. Instead of coming right over to Bethany to heal Lazarus from his sickness, he waits. No one can figure out why he's waiting. Of course, we who know the end of the story know why he was waiting. But he wanted the glory of God to be displayed in this way. So he arrives from the viewpoint of the sisters and from the viewpoint of everybody else. He arrives too late to do any miracle. And let's pick up the story in John eleven seventeen. 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Everybody remember that. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here. He's he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, now I ask you, where have we heard this before? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. There's a lot there. This is all I'm trying to get across. He deals with us personally. Two sisters. Exact same situation. Exact same catastrophe. They both start with M. M-A. M-A-R. Okay, okay, okay. Two sisters, exact same situation, exact same quote to Jesus, was it not? Verbatim, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus' interaction with them could not have been more different. With Martha, he not really rebukes her, but Gives some corrective teaching. With Martha, he gives a sermon. He says, hey, I'm the resurrection of life. Not just the resurrection at the end times, the resurrection now. Your brother will rise again. And he challenges her. Do you believe this? Puts her on the spot. Do you believe this? Gives her the ministry of truth and confronts her. With Mary, he cries. Just weeps out of word. Just, all right, show, show me where you laid him. Ah, he's a wonderful counselor. For one, he gives the ministry of truth. For the other, he gives the ministry of tears. Why? Because he deals with us personally, and here's the second point, he diagnoses us properly. He deals with us personally. Because he diagnoses us properly. Listen, listen. He knew exactly what Martha needed, and he knew exactly what Mary needed. He knew Martha needed to be confronted for whatever reason. He knew Martha would respond with that truth. That, uh, you know, Mary, Mary, he knew would respond just with his tears, with being there. He diagnoses us properly. Martha needed, if you will, the ministry of truth. Mary needed the ministry of tears. And I will say, we need both. The problem is, many of you are counselors. Some of you are professional counselors perhaps. But I mean, many of you have to, from time to time, give counsel to a friend. Haven't you had a friend or a family member say, hey, I need some advice? Hey, I need some wisdom. Haven't you had a loved one who's gone through some terrible tragedy and you had to know what to say? Here's the problem. I face this all the time. When I'm asked to give counsel, here's the problem. I don't know. I don't know. Why? Because I'm not the wonderful counselor. Jesus is. Here's my problem. Sometimes, when I need to just be patient and let somebody talk, and I probably just need to weep with them, I confront them. And it doesn't go well. You know, I I give them the truth. Well, here's what you need to do. You know, Right? When I should have just been quiet, listen, and been there. Other times, I'm sitting there, and i just, I'm gonna just be with this person. And I'm weeping when they weep, and I'm there. When what they really need is the truth. (laughs) They really need me to confront them, right? I I can't seem to, to figure out when to give the ministry of truth, when to give the ministry of tears. But you know who can? Always. Always, always, always. Exactly what you need. Never too much. Never too little in just the right balance every time. How is, I mean, sometimes he'll hold your hand through a season and sometimes he'll give you a punch in the chops when you need it, spiritually speaking, right? Confrontation, conviction, and yet compassion and tenderness. Never out of shame, never out of guilt and condemnation, always out of love. He knows exactly how much you need and what you need, truth and tears. How? Well, because he's unlike The counselors we go to, even the best, oh, the best counselors, wouldn't you love for a counselor to say, you know, I've actually been there? You lay out your problem and they go, I've actually been there. I've literally had that same thing happen to me. Oh, okay, then talk to me. You know, for everything you've gone through, the Bible says, he, we don't have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? We have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There it is, tears and truth. He knows what it's like. He has been there. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, Hebrews says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, tempted in all things, yet without sin. It's not really the, the, the point, but uh, I will say, the more you hang around the wonderful counselor, the better counselor you'll become. Because you tend to be, if you're like me, you tend to either be a, you tend to either be a fixer or a feeler. You tend to be one or the other, right? So you're either the fixer. Yeah, 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 you got a lot of problems. Here's what you're going to do. You should write this down, okay? (laughs) Or the feeler. Mm, Oh, oh. do you have any advice? No, but I'm here with you. You have anything I can do? No, but I love you so much. Your love is awesome. Anything at all, right? You really need to confront. You tend to be a fixer or a feeler. The more you hang around Jesus, um, the more you... You tend to be a feeler and not confront because you're worried about what other people think about you. If you're a fixer, you struggle a little bit with maybe compassion and mercy. But if you hang around Jesus, you realize, wait a minute, I can be bold and tell this person what they need because God loves me so much he died for me, but I can also be humble and relate because I realize I'm such a mess, Christ had to die for me. Does that make sense? He makes us better counselors. Anyway, the... uh, the the struggle, you know, for 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 knowing what people need, um, it can be so real. And I, I wonder if people sometimes feel this when they bring a friend to church. If you get uh, five or ten minutes, you should uh, get on the internet and Google uh, Matt Chandler. Your Gospel Coalition featured this sermon. It's from two thousand nine. It's a long long ago, um, but it's called uh, um, uh, Matt Chandler. I'll tell you the title at the end because it's kind of the punchline. Um, but he, uh, he, he talks about, the, uh, he was in college, really caught fire for the Lord, and he found himself sitting next to in class a, a 26-year-old uh, single mom who was coming back to college to try to put her life, um, put her life together and, and made some choices. She was, uh, had a rough life, put, the, put it that way. And so Chandler, um, who's now on fire for Jesus, just starts witnessing to her and basically sharing with her the gospel and the grace of God and the love of God and he and um, some of the friends at their little campus ministry began just blessing her. They babysit her kids so that she could go, and she was working. Uh, she was currently in an extramarital affair while all this is happening, and they tried to counsel her, you know, the wisdom of that. And uh, Anyway, just loved on her and showed her the gospel and all this. Invited her to a church service because his buddy was in the band. And got through the music, and the band was just incredible, and the worship music was so good, and he was like, yes. And he said, the guy gets up there, and he says, uh, you know, the preacher gets up there and he says, I want to talk about sexual purity. You know, and Chandler's like, oh. And he says, um, he did not handle it well and full of condemnation and judgment and he says he's got this, for his closing illustration, he's got this rose and he talks about, you know, he smells the rose and he talks about how beautiful it is and how perfect and he throws it out into the crowd and then just talks about all the the promiscuity, and the immorality, and the whole time Chandler's like, I can't believe, I mean, here this woman needs a word of grace, and she's getting all this, and, 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 and finally, for his crescendo at the end, the preacher says, and who's got my rose? Where's my, uh, where's my rose? And some teenager, you know, brings it up to him, and by then, of course, you can imagine the rose has been passed around the whole crowd. It's, it's all broken, and the, the petals are all falling off, and, and for his point, you know, he now I ask you who would want this rose as if to drive home his point who would want this rose and Chandler said he just wanted to just felt such anger but he had the presence of mind to tell that woman Jesus wants that rose That's who Jesus wants the rose that's the gospel See, that that woman needed that word of grace. She needed to know Jesus wants the rose. Just Google Matt Chandler, Jesus wants the rose. He tells the story better. It's his story. He was there. But But the point, the point, right? He's the, Jesus, he gets it right every time. He knows exactly what people need. To the woman caught in adultery in John 8, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Tears and truth. Perfect. Oh, he's such a wonderful counselor. Have you booked some time with this counselor lately? Is that what you need to do? One of the mental health crises is that folks can't get time with good counselors. Is everybody hearing me say, I'm recommending counseling. I'm saying this is a good thing. But what if you can't get an appointment you can't book? Whether or not you can... Go see a physical human counselor. Book some time with the wonderful counselor this afternoon and this week. Well, he deals with us personally and he diagnoses us properly. I suppose a really, really, really good counselor could do both those things. But only Jesus can do what no human counselor can do. He delivers us powerfully. He delivers us powerfully here's why he's the wonderful counselor did you ever think about what wonderful means wonderful is not uh "Ah, this is really good wonderful means full of wonder as in miraculous he is the wonderful counselor hey i hear you going to a counselor yeah miracle worker that person can work miracles oh you mean they're really good at diagnosing no I mean, my wonderful counselor can full-blown work a miracle. Look at the rest of the story. Then Jesus, when he goes to the grave of Lazarus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, verse 38. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you heard me. Now, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. <laughs> the old preacher said, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, he had to call him Lazarus and specify, otherwise every dead body on earth would have come forth out of the grave. <clears throat> There's that much power in the word of Jesus. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound him with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Why? Because when Jesus raises you from the dead, he sets you free. You don't need those grave clothes anymore. He came to destroy that final enemy. If you were here last week, 1 Corinthians 15, that final enemy, death, and you see here a foretaste of what's coming for death. Death is that final enemy. The problem, of course, that the wages of sin is death. So how can, how can Jesus destroy death without destroying us if death is what we deserve? Well, John 11 is the turning point in the Gospel of John. And this wonderful counselor knew if he was just going just gonna to listen to people's problems and just going to help fix and just heal, he could have had a long, successful ministry. But for him to deliver powerfully, oh, from that day on, if you look at verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That was the miracle. That was the sign in the series of the signs of the book of John. That was the one where his enemy said, now he has to die. It means that Jesus knew when he called Lazarus out of the grave what he was doing. He knew the only way to get Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself in one. Jesus knew the only way to stop our funeral was to cause his own out of his love for you and me. The band's gonna come and or the musicians, Chuck, and uh, just help us with some musical response. I wanna give an invitation. I want you to think deeply about that. No wonderful counselor has ever laid down his life for sinful humanity. But this wonderful counselor delivers powerfully oh he deals with us personally and he wants a relationship with you right now he's taking appointments today (laughs) he diagnoses properly he knows just what you need never too much never too little Jesus would have known to tell that woman in Matt Chandler's story oh I want that rose and he would have known to how to how to humble the prideful and the arrogant And he would have done it just right. He loved that preacher who mishandled that message. And he would have had a word for that preacher too. You you understand. Diagnosis perfectly. Oh, but he delivers powerfully. And to stop our funeral. When he said, Lazarus, come out. He was signing his own death warrant. And he knew it. You know, in that text in in John 11, when he weeps, uh, there's a... There's some haters, and then there's some supporters, I guess you'd call them. And when he weeps, the haters are like, well, he opened the eyes of the blind man. He's crying, but it's his own fault. He could have come and healed Lazarus. But there are others when he wept that said this. They said, see how much he loved him. See how much he loved him. Those people were right, and they had no idea how right they were. They thought he was weeping like you and I would weep at the death of a loved one. But he loved them, not just... just we all love and so we feel loss that's that's why you feel loss because you love if you love greatly you'll feel the loss greatly that just makes sense that's human grief that's fine but jesus loved lazarus so much that he was going to prevent lazarus he was going to overturn lazarus's funeral by himself going to the cross laying down his own life and being raised again on the third day for us and our salvation. He did not do this as a moral example. He did this to remove the wrath of God and put us under the blessing of God so that all the promises predicted in Isaiah 9, the locker room celebration and the harvest and the yoke of oppression gone forever could be our inheritance forevermore. Now you tell me an earthly counselor can do that. There's not one. We need a wonderful counselor. Book a session with him today. Let's pray. God, grant that we would have the good sense to spend time with you, our wonderful counselor. Lord, I pray for those wrestling with illnesses of any sort, physical, mental. God, grant physicians and counselors and grant them the appointments they need to further mental health. But God, wherever we are, let all of us spend time with you, the wonderful counselor. And I pray, Lord, for those that do not yet know you as wonderful counselor, that today they would know you love them. That you have the wisdom to make sense of their life, and you have the wisdom and the wonder to deliver. Diagnose perfectly, but deliver powerfully. And let Those of us who know you, let us uh, never uh, uh, have that uh, uh, heart of unbelief that Hebrews warns us against. Let us encourage one another as we spend time with our wonderful counselor. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.